Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode, supported by the Institute of Genetics and Cancer at the University of Edinburgh, we discover how researchers are using genetics to understand more about what's going on in long-term debilitating conditions, including ME-CFS and chronic pain, working hand-in-hand with patients to help to figure out who might be at risk and pointing towards new ideas for treatment. As a child back in the 1980s, I remember seeing headlines about so-called yuppie flu, a strange health condition that often affected people in the prime of life, draining them of their energy. You won't hear that term anymore, as it's now known as myalgic encephalomyelitis, or chronic fatigue syndrome. But while things have moved on a lot in terms of recognising this condition, as well as public attitudes to people who live with it, there's still a lot we need to learn. ME-CFS is a multifaceted, fluctuating condition that's often characterised by extreme tiredness, although there can be other unpleasant symptoms like joint and muscle pains, headaches, problems sleeping, eye pain, problems with concentration or brain fog, and more. Although ME-CFS is rare, affecting less than 1% of the population, that still adds up to a quarter of a million people in the UK living with it today. Yet we still know very little about what's going on at a biological level. One person who's trying to change this is Professor Chris Ponting at the MRC Human Genetics Unit within the Institute of Genetics and Cancer at the University of Edinburgh. He's leading a major new research study called Decode Me, searching for genetic variations that may explain why some people are more likely to develop ME-CFS than others. The first thing I wanted to know, though, was... What triggers it to start in the first place? So the triggers of ME are many, but the principal one is infection. So people with flu or other types of bacterial infection often can later on in in their illness uh, be diagnosed with, with ME. What do we know about its biology? Well, we know that if you have a, a second-degree relative who has ME, then you're more, more likely yourself to have ME and you don't share the same environment. So it does seem that there is a genetic component that contributes. And then there have been studies which I think have, have shown reasonably well that um, aspects such as the mitochondrion contributes to whether you have ME or not. But this is exactly why we as geneticists need to start studying it at greater depth, because there is very little that is actually known about the predisposing factors. So it does seem to be that it's something to do with the immune system. And like, you know, as well as I do, that there are there are a lot of genes and things like that involved in the immune system. So how do we start to tease out what might be going on? It's very hard to know what might be going on when you've got so few leads. So what we're doing at the moment is trying to see whether there's an immune signature. As you know, we have T-cell receptors that are are responding to infection. And and it may be that we'll be able to show that people diagnosed with ME have a different repertoire of T-cell receptors. But if we look from a genetics point of view, objectively, looking across the whole genome and find something. Of course, we don't know ahead of time what that will be, but we are looking at everything. That's the beauty of the genome and and genomics is that we're not prejudiced as to what the outcome will be. It may be that we'll find 
that indeed because the trigger is immunological, that there is a problem in the immune system. It may be, however, that it's nothing to do with the immune system. It's the inability of, of people to get better after an immune challenge. And so therefore, it, it could be something in to do with the brain, for example, or other aspects that we haven't yet even perceived. So that's why I'm excited to look at this new challenge from a genomic perspective. So let's dig into what you're actually doing there with the Decode Me study. What exactly is it? Who are you looking for? How many people? And then what are you going to do with them? We are looking for upwards of 20,000 people in the UK who have been diagnosed by a health professional with ME. We hope that people can log on to our website after we launch and are able to respond to a variety of questions. So we will have hopefully upwards of 20,000 people with ME. We will send out a saliva sample collection kit to people in their own homes. They will spit in a tube, package it up, send it back to us via the post, and we will then get going. We will take out the DNA. We will send it to a company securely so that they can then read out at up to a million places in the genome where there are common differences in DNA between people. And then from each of those up to a million places, we'll be able to ask the question, are these changes in DNA, differences in DNA, do they occur more frequently in people with ME versus healthy controls? And we have the data for the healthy controls already. So we are therefore going to be saying, are there genetic reasons why some people have a greater likelihood of being diagnosed with ME or not? That will then enable us to say, given that we know this difference and it's genetic and it's inherited, we will then know what are the correct biological experiments to then um, throw at this problem. And as we've already talked about, we actually don't know what's going wrong. So asking the right question is, in fact, the starting point to the next phase once we have finished doing our genetics experiment, Decode ME. So the kind of study that you're doing, it's what we'd call a genome-wide association study. And I think it's it's really important to explain what you're going to find from that, because quite often we hear about these studies and it's like, oh, scientists are looking for the genes for this or that. And you're not actually, from the data from the study, you're not going to necessarily find genes per se. You're going to find variations between people. And so then the first challenge is to figure out, like, are these actually in genes? what genes? And then what do these genes do, right? That this study isn't immediately going to spit out, these are the genes, this is what's important, this is what's inherited, and this is this is how this disease works. Absolutely right. The genome-wide association study will not, as you say, fly a flag which says gene X. It will say that there is a DNA difference in around a bunch of genes, and we have to figure out which of those genes, or more than one gene, has the downstream consequence of that DNA change. I'm not just a human geneticist, I'm uh, an experimental genomics researcher. And so we and the field have worked out ways where we can determine what are the downstream changes that occur because of that DNA change. 
And so now we've, we've got some pretty sophisticated ways in which we can work out the downstream consequences and therefore will enable us to work out which are the experiments to work on what genes to decide uh, why it is that some people have ME. So what is going to be the longer term benefit of this information, whether it's the just the data from the study saying these variations are more or less common, or then finding these downstream genes? Like what do you what do you do with this data? Is it a way of screening people, a way of finding treatments? What then happens with the results? Great question. So obviously and unfortunately this will not immediately provide treatment for people with ME. This is a journey. We will start it, but it, it won't be the panacea that everyone would wish for the quarter of a million people um, who are suffering in this country. But we have to take the first steps. Unfortunately, it is also not going to be able to ensure that there is a genetic test to say, yes, you have ME and that is because of your DNA. So it's not relevant to individuals. The findings will be relevant to the population, to the quarter of a million people. And the outcome will be that we will hopefully know where to look for the problems with ME, rather than just guesswork, which is, uh, is what the situation is now, guessing what is going wrong um, with ME. So it will shine a light as to which path to follow and down the path it will enable us to come up with what are the molecules that need to be targeted for therapy. And we will engage with the pharmaceutical industry to, as quickly as possible, develop you know, potential therapies and follow those up with clinical trials. But if I may, our study, I believe, will have another consequence. It will bring together, because of the need of having so many people in the study, it'll bring together thousands of people who have not been connected. It will bring to light to the general community how difficult these people's lives are. It will shine light for health professionals as to you know, the lived experience of these people. And therefore, we'll have a greater benefit, perhaps in the short term, as to the social recognition of the, the plight of so many people with such a devastating disease. Chris Ponting from the MRC Human Genetics Unit in the Institute of Genetics and Cancer at the University of Edinburgh. One of the most important parts of the Decode Me study is that people living with MECFS are involved in every aspect of it, and Andy Devereux-Cook is one of them. He's one of three people on the study management team, effectively playing as much of a leading role in the project as Chris does, along with other patient and public involvement activities, or PPI as it's known. Andy's been living with MECFS for about 40 years, most likely since he had the measles aged nine and was never the same again. He's gone through better and worse patches along the way, and his condition has understandably had a big impact on his life and his work. I wanted to know why he decided to get involved in Decode Me, and why it's so important that patient voices are heard. We do not know anywhere near enough about this condition in order to adequately treat it. So our only route forward is research into what is it exactly is happening and therefore the, the opportunity to take part in Decode ME was a fantastic opportunity to actually play a part in, in increasing our, our knowledge base of ME-CFS. 
So, like I say, to play a part in that was fabulous opportunity. Within my circumstances, I count myself lucky that I am able to, because so many ME-CFS patients, for one reason or another, couldn't possibly do it, whether that be because the, their condition is so serious that they are even talking to you like this would, would be far beyond them, or they are just struggling to live their life, to, to earn enough money, and each working day they, they kind of just about make it home. Uh, that was me for, for quite a long while. So I certainly wish that uh, my circumstances were different, but given that they're not, I count myself lucky to be involved. And the involvement of the patient community in this kind of research, what's the general feeling there about the importance of being involved in this? I know that in the past there has been a sense with some patient groups that you know, you're know you doing experiments on us, not with us. Does that feel like that that has changed? Uh, we would need to see more evidence of studies like DecodeMe, which has such a high level of patient and public involvement for us to know whether whether the circumstances have changed i certainly hope they have and i think your your description of how it's been in the past it is accurate the lack of involvement of of patients who uh through lived experience are the experts is <laughs> shocking that it didn't happen because we ended up with studies that didn't benefit the patients what has that involvement looked like? You know, you're meeting with a scientist, you get to see what they do, tell them what to do. We're involved in every step. For myself, I'm on the management team. It's a long way from just having a patient like, oh, can you just look at our patient info? And yeah, we've done it. We've, do we've done the engagement. That's fine. Absolutely. Yeah. And particularly now in my experience of the level of engagement in, in Decode ME, it does come across as shocking to me that that previously was considered a high level of patient involvement. I've kind of said elsewhere that um, I'm very grateful to Professor Ponting for basically his generosity in and his trust in, in us PPI members in basically allowing us to be part of the project in the way that we are. You know, it could be easy for, for it to be just a showpiece where it's the three of us in the management team by name but not actually in action. But it very much is the case that any decisions that come to us on the management team, it's a joint decision. And similarly, on all the delivery teams, it's um, the, the input of the patients, the PPI members, is taken very seriously. But overall, it does feel broadly like things are starting to head in the right direction after, as you say, 40 years of really being in the dark. Yeah, we need much more. Decode ME is a, is a step in the right direction and we are seeing further steps forward, but we do seem to have a marathon to run yet. Not that ME CFS patients can run marathons, but um, in terms of understanding ME, understanding the impact, the horrendous impact that it can have on, on patients, we have a long, long way to go. But hopefully, perhaps, if, if I can use an analogy, we have made our way up to the top of the hill and we can start looking downhill towards our destination rather than having only got up to a gone up a short rise and then seen the, the mountain peak in the distance. Hopefully we're on a downward path rather than an upward one, at least in terms of um, the path being easier. 
Andy Devereux-Cook there. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. Thanks to the Institute of Genetics and Cancer at the University of Edinburgh for supporting this episode. Find us online at geneticsunzip.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show. Let's move from chronic fatigue syndrome to another chronic life-limiting health issue, chronic pain. Medically speaking, this is pain that has lasted for three months or more, and it can be very difficult to manage and treat effectively. Professor Blair Smith is a consultant in pain medicine at Ninewells Hospital in Dundee and a clinical researcher at the University of Dundee working on Generation Scotland, a large research study looking at the health, well-being and genetics of more than 24,000 people living in Scotland from around 7,000 families. As you might expect, Blair has a particular interest in trying to find out whether there's any genetic connection with chronic pain. But before we talked about that, I wanted to know a bit more about what chronic pain actually is. So pain is different for every person and I as a doctor can't tell you what your pain is like, but pain can be the, arise from some definite physical insult such as an injury or surgery, or very often we can't find an underlying cause or sometimes there's tissue damage that is ongoing causing the pain, very often it's associated with psychological factors or social factors, such as um, your circumstances in which you're living, or recent or ongoing distress, which can either cause or certainly compound the pain. And the combination of physical, psychological, social, spiritual factors are all important in creating the impact of the pain on the individual. And when we're diagnosing people with chronic pain, what are the kinds of things that people are coming with? Can you give me some examples? Yes, I think the commonest presentation of chronic pain is back pain, chronic low back pain. And actually, um, the Global Burden of Disease study shows that chronic back pain is the single greatest cause of disability everywhere in the world, Scotland, UK, globally, every, every single country. But other important causes of chronic pain are arthritis, surgery, nerve-related pain arising from, from diabetes. We have conditions such as fibromyalgia, which is one of the ones for which we are yet to find an underlying physiological reason, chronic headaches. But as I say, very often it's a combination of, of causes or conditions or things which are difficult to describe and even harder to diagnose firmly. And I guess then it becomes even harder to think about how best to treat these kind of things. What are the kind of treatment approaches at the moment? Well, receiving most attention at the moment uh, is treatment with, with medications, drugs, and particularly in the news, treatment with opioids, strong, potentially harmful drugs, which can relieve pain in the short term, but for which there is limited research for effectiveness in the long term. Other drugs, such as gabapentinoids, are also becoming more important, but there's the standards such as paracetamol, non-steroidal inflammatory medicines like ibuprofen. But we're moving away from a focus entirely on analgesic treatment and moving away from the word painkiller, for example, because we can't kill pain. It's always there. And we're trying to increase emphasis on non-pharmacal approaches such as physical activity, self-management approaches, psychological approaches, and, and looking at the social environment in which people are, are living, seeing how we can adapt that. 
And then we get to the focus of this podcast, which is the genetics of it. So when we're starting to think about, you know, how do you bring together the world of genetics and the world of pain, what are the kinds of questions that you can ask through this kind of lens of genetics about pain itself and and about the kind of people and and the conditions that are linked to it? I mean, the first question I suppose to ask is, does pain run in families? Does chronic pain run in families? In other words, is it heritable? And we can look at that, for example, in the, uh, the Scottish Family Health Study, which is one of the Generation Scotland studies. And there we did find that there is a degree of heritability in, in chronic pain. So if you look at any chronic pain, the heritability was around about 29%. In other words, almost a third of the um, experience of pain runs in families. However, if you then adjust for factors like shared household environment, the way you were brought up, your age and your gender, that heritability goes down from 29 to 16%. So not very heritable then. <laughs> well, exactly. It's higher. So it's 44% for if you just look at severe chronic pain, unadjusted, but then adjusting for these factors, it goes down to 30%. So about a third of uh, chronic pain was heritable. And then if you look at specific causes like neuropathic pain in a twin study was found to be 37% heritable. So, I mean, it's a a reasonable amount of heritability, but as you're implying, what I find most interesting and important as a doctor treating these people with chronic pain is that that means the vast majority of it is not heritable, therefore not genetic, and we have to focus on, on these other causes. However, it is important to look at, now that you've established that there is a heritable component, uh, important to look at what the genes are, if we can, that are involved in that heritability, because they give a clue as to the physiological mechanisms that might be generating that pain. It definitely feels like these approaches are kind of trying to get a a chink, you know, something that you can get a a tool into when you've got something that is as, as big and challenging as trying to understand pain. Yeah. So how, how do you go about that? For example, in the studies in, in like Generation Scotland, how are you trying to investigate the genetics of pain? Well, Generation Scotland is a reasonable sized study. It was a big study when we set it up. Of course, there are many much larger studies and there are smaller studies as well. The strength of Generation Scotland is that it's recruited in family groups. So that increases the power to look at heritability and then genetics. I think there are two main approaches to looking at genes involved, potentially involved in pain. And one is to look at what we call candidate genes, genes that have been found in other studies, perhaps in animal studies or in other smaller human studies as being potentially important in the development of pain. And we can test for those, we can assess the connection, the association between those specific genes and chronic pain as we defined it in Generation Scotland or in other studies. That's a a following up on a hypothesis that's been generated by other studies. The other approach is to have a hypothesis-free approach, which is a fancy word for a fishing trip. So we can take a genome-wide approach where we just look at all the genes, all the genetic variants that we've that we've been able to genotype in the sample, and we can put in pain phenotype, and we can look at the associations between those hundreds of thousands or even millions of genetic variants and the occurrence of chronic pain in a so-called genome-wide association study. And so what do we know so far? Has anything come out of, of this approach I, coming from either direction? You're sort of fishing or looking for your usual suspects? 
first of all, of course, um, we have to look at fairly well-known but rare conditions, which are Mendelian, in other words, the purely genetic. So, for example, a condition called congenital insensitivity to pain. It's not a cause of pain, obviously. It's an insensitivity to pain where you can't feel pain. And there's one gene, a sodium channel gene, SNC9A, has been identified as the underlying cause for that. So we can look at that as a candidate gene associated with other pain-related phenotypes. And we do find that it does come up with some degree of association in some studies. One thing which we do find is that few, if any, of these candidate genes have been replicated consistently. In other words, they might come up in one study, but they're not definitively reproduced when you try and do the same, test the same gene in a different study. And I think that's because often, because first of all, the associations are relatively weak. There is not one pain gene. So the associations are relatively weak in terms of their overall effect. And therefore, you need large or actually very large sample sizes in order to confirm them. And secondly, you know, we haven't really got into it, but how to identify pain in large population studies is a whole branch of discussion and, and science in itself. And it's difficult to do it. Well, it's impossible to do it objectively. It's difficult to do it subjectively with any validity. And it's almost never done the same way in two related studies. So it might be associated in one study and not in the next. And we don't know if that's because it's a different way of defining pain or if it's a different population or if the gene just was a false finding in the first study. I guess it must be so frustrating when it's not something you can just do a blood test for or a scan and say it's like, yep, you've got X amount of this in you. And so we can tell that your pain is Y and therefore we find this association. Yeah, that is a, I mean, it's a frustration, but it's it's part of the natural phenomenon of pain and goes back to what I said at the beginning, that your individual pain experience is determined not just by any underlying physical problem, even if there is a physical issue there, but the other factors that are so important. There is work being done, of course, in trying to develop a biometric signature for pain, which will include blood tests, stress hormones we've implied already, but uh, MRI scanning, a lot of work going on there. So we're working towards trying to get a fingerprint for pain, but it's a long way off. And once we've developed that, then tying that up with genetic signals is going to be another separate challenge. And I guess coming back to the patients and their experience, how does having these sort of genetic clues, how will that actually help patients and help to improve their experience and ideally reduce their pain? I mean, it's interesting you focused on the positive. We'll come back to a negative, potential negative in uh, due course, which I came across in my clinic last week. I mean, the positive, potential positive is, as I've said, if, if we can identify underlying mechanisms of pain, whether that's a specific cause of the pain or the association between other things and the pain, then we've then potentially got a, a target for developing prevention or treatment for that pain. But also just a, a general understanding of how pain develops. So, for example, if you take neuropathic pain, that's nerve-related pain. In our research group, we've done a lot of work on the genetic factors associated with neuropathic pain. And a lot of, as we say, unreplicated genes, but genes that are potentially associated with neuropathic pain tend to be involved in neurotransmission, the passage of nerve signals between one nerve and another, or metabolic processes, or immune response is very important, so how, how our body responds to, to infections or foreign bodies. And so by identifying those and the stress response system, another one, by identifying those as important underlying biological pathways, 
then we can maybe begin to address the bigger picture of these pathways in addressing pain, stress response being an obvious one. If, as has been the general clinical impression, stress is closely related to pain, if we can identify and implement therapeutic approaches that deal with stress, then perhaps we can improve the pain or the impact of it in individual patients, which confirms clinical impression. And you mentioned there was potentially a, a downside to this approach. What have you experienced? Yes, yeah, so this was a, and it's obvious when you think about it, but this is a patient I saw in clinic I've been seeing for quite some time, and she's actually doing quite well in response to treatment. But at the end of our last um, meeting, she asked me, without knowing anything about my research interests, she asked me what the genetic factors underlying pain were and whether it ran in families, because her daughter and her granddaughter also had chronic pain conditions. And I started, went off in a very well-informed <laughs> discussion about the, the genetic factors associated with pain and the heritability. And then it occurred to me that her daughter is 17 and has just been diagnosed with a chronic pain condition, fibromyalgia, I think it was. And I became aware that if I was giving this information that pain does run in families and that there is a genetic basis, then potentially I could be subconsciously consigning that 17-year-old girl to the belief that her pain and a lifetime of pain is inevitable, which it's not. But it's closely associated with your expectations and your beliefs and your attitudes. And if she's entering adulthood with the belief that the pain that she's experienced is genetic and therefore beyond her control, then that will be a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I then went back on myself and said, what I started off this conversation by saying that the heritable and genetic component of pain is a very small component and by far the majority is what we do about it and, and the other circumstances. So to focus on the things that she can change rather than the things that she can't. Let's dig a little deeper into how researchers are trying to join the dots between genetics and pain. Professor Caroline Hayward and her team at the MLC Human Genetics Unit within the Institute of Genetics and Cancer have been working together with clinical colleagues like Blair Smith, scanning through the DNA from thousands of people in the Generation Scotland study and other cohorts in search of genetic variations that might be contributing to chronic pain. So, how does she do it? Well, the phenotype, which is the definition you're using for pain, and if somebody has chronic back pain, which has lasted for a long time, they will be basically a case, and you have controls who have not had any pain in the back, and you relate it to age and sex, and you correct for that because there's different, obviously, as you get older, you have more pain. So it's we do genome-wide analysis, which is looking at the whole genome and we can identify the regions that are associated with people who have pain compared with people who don't have pain and you will see differences in the genetic components. It might sound a bit strange that you're trying to find genetic variations that are associated with something that certainly I think is is quite physical like maybe someone's had an accident or they're not sitting properly at their desk or they've lifted a box funny or, or you know they're just getting old and creaky so do we have any inkling that you know the genes will be involved in some way what what gives you hope that there might be some kind of connection well we know there is some influence of age and sex relating to pain we know that but also we know that there must be some genetic component for this because people have looked at family studies and you do have a tendency to get 
different generations who have very similar things. You have things like rheumatic pain and rheumatism and things like that, which are pain-related factors. And I think there is, inevitably, with all things, there's likely to be genes involved. But unfortunately, it's very, very difficult because pain is not just one thing. It's a very diverse set of conditions. So by getting large enough numbers of individuals, you hopefully can pull out or tease out the actual genetic influence. The genetic influence may not be that high. It's very diverse, very, very, very diverse phenotype. But there is slow progress. There is progress. And certainly with the UK Biobank, they have something like nearly half a million people of which they've got substantial number of cases and controls. And they are actually starting to identify things. But again, it's how you define pain. And you can do it by specific locations. But that may not be relevant. And there may be some psychological aspect to pain as well. And and certainly there has been a study relating to depression and pain. And people they have found that there is some association with the risk of developing depression and pain. Now, whether you develop depression because you have pain or whether you have pain because you have depression hasn't been untangled. I can see that it does seem like a very complex problem because... On the superficial level, you can imagine that there are genetic variations that contribute to, you know, how your skeleton is built, how your tendons fit together, how your muscles work, you know, your arms slightly wonky or something like that. And then, you know, the the genetic variations that affect how much you are sensitive to pain. You know, are you someone who's like, oh, that hurts a lot? And then, like you say, the psychological side of it and how your your brain is kind of wired up and, and working and all sorts of other influences that fit together. Mm-hmm. It does sound like a, a hard problem. So that I guess the scale of the number of people and the, the number of places in the genome you need to look at, how do you really go about trying to get the, the scale of the data that you need to find these associations? Well, you have to collect the data and you have to collect the samples and people have, have to have asked the correct questions in the cohorts. Now, there's lots of big cohorts across the world internationally there's the Japanese cohort but some of these have not asked the specific questions and there are pain questionnaires that are defined specifically from a clinical point of view to actually hone in on pain itself. Yeah I guess if you're not defining it in a standardised way then you you can't get standardised insights out even if all your other things are the same. Yes that's exactly it. it. It's very difficult and there are quite a lot of other conditions that are very much the same. Anemia is a classic example. It's it's a whole range from right across, you know, maybe there might be 100, 200, even more different forms of the same thing. And pain may well come into that sort of thing, which makes it very, very difficult. But it's still worthwhile. And the, with bigger sample sizes, it will become more and more possible to actually focus in to what is important. That's Caroline Hayward. And thanks to my other guests, Blair Smith, Andy Devereux-Cook and Chris Ponting. And also thanks to the Institute of Genetics and Cancer at the University of Edinburgh for supporting this episode and to Dee Davison for setting it all up. That's all for now. We'll be back next time taking a look at the story behind my favourite gene and the inspiration for my first book, Herding Hemingway's Cats. It's Sonic Hedgehog. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. 
You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And please, please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference and it does help more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Kat Arney. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, our logo was designed by James Mayle and audio production is by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye.